Welcome to the Bilge Pumps, where a bunch of naval geeks spout off. Hello everyone and welcome to Bilge Pumps episode 21, I think it is. Maybe. Seriously, five more and we're at our six month mark and everyone is very, very confused at that point. Now, today we have the regular crew, which is, of course, me, Alex Clark, Draken Fennell, our lovely, not just noted YouTuber, but also World of Warships official community member now, which <laughs> means if he does get to profile HMS Indomitable Jay and doesn't invite Jamie, he'll be getting <laughs> kangaroos and boomerangs. Drop bears. Drop and, bears. And drop bears. If he does HMS Cossack, Daring, or vampire, HMS Vampire without me, then I know where he lives. His iron brew will be watered down for the rest of his life. <laughs> <laughs> and we have Jamie C. Delvarma carries, but most importantly, we have the one and only Steve George. Now, Steve George is a retired Royal Navy engineer who was in the Falklands and did amazing stuff down there keeping the aircraft going. He also is joined today by the official declassified engineering report, which he has with him, which he's just shown us over the Skype and has basically made my colleague salivate. And also... <laughs> He's worked on the F-35 project very closely, including involved in the integration and with the with various parts of the Royal Navy. So I am not sure how many parts this will, will have when it's done. I'm not sure how long this will be. But buckle up, because you know that thing that Bilge Pumps loves to provide? Context? There is going to be so much of that today. <laughs> Welcome, gents. Okay. Steve, would you like to introduce yourself for the listeners? Okay, thank you very much, uh, Alex. I'm uh, Steve George. I'm a retired Royal Navy aircraft engineer officer for reasons beyond my grasp. They saw fit to make me a commander by the time I retired. I am now, um, or, or at the time of the Falklands, I was uh, coming on to one year in as the deputy air engineer on 820 Squadron embarked in HMS Invincible with nine seeking Mark Fives. Um, the and uh, our job during the op was to provide a range of roles, uh, primarily anti 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 submarine screening and also surface search and a certain amount of helicopter delivery service as well which we'll be able to go into the details of that so that's who i was that's what we did sailed as as everybody remembers with the fleet on the day and didn't get back until mid-september um, i think it's like 158 days at sea which i believe is a world record for carrier ops so that's to was there's only one thing i would add to gently uh vary from my very nice introduction is that i didn't do amazing things it was our squadron and the ship that did amazing things i was really relatively junior i was about 20, 27 at the time and any credit for anything that comes out of this was that does most emphatically not rest with me it rests with our men. Thank you. 
Now that is absolutely perfect. And now I feel I'm not sure how to follow that because that was so good. Well, well I I, I could probably provide a a little bit of humor because I'm I'm guessing that counter to some claims made by certain people in South American countries, you could probably confirm that HMS Invincible was not in fact sunk by Argentinian missiles. It was absolutely not. We were um, subject to attack. Uh, or perceived attack a number of times. It's important to remember just how primitive our AEW capability was, i.e. nil. So we had to rely on very fast-moving reports. But yes, we were absolutely not sunk or attacked. Absolutely <laughs> I, not. The kind I'm of thing now going to hold myself remember. very closely so I don't get into my usual moaning about the <laughs> AEW. <laughs> well, that was... That, that was... Um, that was but that was sadly part of what we had to do. And it was one of the many surprises. Perhaps this this could help. Our job on the CVS in the Cold War, which was where we were on the day the Falklands rode out, was really relatively understood. We would be on the port flank of convoys coming across from uh, America. And we would be conducting anti-submarine screening ops for 14 days at a time. And that was what the squadron was built around, honed down so we could last for 14 days. Our equipment was had been active dunking sonar, which we still had. However, 820 were the uh, first frontline squadron fully equipped with the Seeking Mark V, which had a passive sonics capability so we were out there and we'd spent the preceding year being absolutely beaten to crap all weathers including a jmc in february where the wind did not drop below 40 knots for two weeks and we were just pinging and dropping the sonar boys however comma two things changed for the Falklands. Firstly, the Sonar Boys were not effective against conventional submarines, of which we know the Argentinians had three. Therefore, we were back to pinging active sonar dunking. That was normally done in terms of what was called a ripple three. What that meant was you pushed three aircraft up in the air to keep two on task on the screen a number of miles forward of the fleet at any one time. So you'd launch two, then you'd launch a third, then one would come back, you'd launch another one, then another one, another one, another one. Okay. You would turn the aircraft round on the deck. Normally, if we could, rotors, uh, rotors uh, going, rotors running, engines running, we would refuel, rearm, crew change. Sometimes we had to shut down single engine. Sometimes we had to shut down completely, depending on the state of play of the plane. So that was the Ripple 3. Again, 14 days was our target to do that. However, two days after sailing, we were informed on top of that, we would have to provide a continuous surface search capability because we didn't have any gannets and gannets used to do that as well. So we also had to put an aircraft up 24 hours a day. So we were then doing a Ripple 4. Okay, so when we so when we went, instead of being a Ripple three passive sonics and dunking, we were suddenly a Ripple four dunking and a surface 
search. That was where we were. That was the tasking two days out. And I'll just stop there and then work. <laughs> so uh, I imagine that would have involved an awful lot of maths and uh, reorganising of uh, check checklists. Um, it's funny you should mention that. We had a lot of luck. Before, the year before, I joined in June the year before, the squadron had done a very detailed scheduled servicing review. That's where we went for a fine tooth comb through every bit of servicing we did on the plane. And we subtracted a lot and we added bits in. And we were very, very uh, sure of what we needed to do to keep these aircraft going for 14 days at a time. The idea was you'd go for 14 days and you would then be pulled out and you would rest and recuperate for two gusting three days. Then you'd be pushed back, back in. Uh, we only had two watches, two watches of, of men. OK, traditionally, the old frontline squadrons had two watches and a slip watch. So they would have two watches mainly during the day and then a slip watch at night. We only had two because we'd been cut down because the ship didn't have any bunks. As well as that, we the, the squadron have been preparing since September the previous year for a massive Far East deployment. And as a result, we had placed massive stores orders from about September the year before to bulk the ship up to keep us going for a full eight month deployment. The ship was normally stored for six months, but we put extra stores in for 12 months out. And so when the balloon went up, all that happened was they pressed a button on the computer. And instead of our stores being at 07 and 012 or 15 or possibly 04, that was, that was a coding, they were all put onto 01, which previously had been referred exclusively for the Polaris submarine fleet. So when we arrived at Portsmouth for the uh, X, there was just this absolute mountain of stuff was appearing. I mean, absolutely, you couldn't walk around it. Where so did you we, put it all? We stowed it. No, we kept it all. You don't give up a thing. The thing well, I was going to say the most the room for your bunk, was, was that the ship had ordered extra general supplies like paper and ironing boards and duplicator fluid and all that had been switched on to Z01 so we had a, we had duplicator fluid being flown in from the states like specially chartered commercial <laughs> air um, oh. the just to set the scene, I've talked about two days out. We were actually, I I was actually given the activation by a call at home. I went into the squadron. I was the first man with gold braid in to get in. My wife had taken me in. It was chaos. So I told my wife, would you please stay here? I think you may need to help. And we jumped on the phones. We found our recall list were quite up to date. And for the first eight hours of the squadron recall, my wife was... <laughs> had come in and helped me do it. The other thing that was unusual for our squadron, really strange, was that we had just come back. We were, the squadron had disembarked for Easter break. However, because we were embarking the day after, the decision, extremely unusual, was made to leave our aircraft on board. And, this, and, the, and we left a duty watch on board of about five uh, people. And then the squadron buggered off on leave. So when the time came to embark, all our aircraft, 
and all our roll equipment and all our books were all on board. And we were very, and we were, that was a lot of good luck. The only bad luck I had was unfortunately that meant I didn't have much to do. So because I had a boat certificate from Dartmouth, I was given command of 12 men, a whaler, and told to go up to the old fleet that was chained up in the trots at Pompey with uh, two stokers armed with cutting gear and take anything off the ships up there that I could. So I was fine. <laughs> so I was, what, actually, dare I ask what it was? No. Uh, refueling gear. We found that the a lot of ships up there had very nice hose of reels, which our ship did not was not equipped with. So we had those, and basically we just went through through the uh, ships. Pitch dark they were because they were turned off completely. So it was, it was scary stuff. But yeah, so quite the fine an, tradition um, of the Royal Navy. Yeah, I was going to say but there's also, a bunch bunch of Royal Navy officers given bolt cutters and told you literally can take anything even if it is bolted down <laughs> Correct. and yes we did form a human chain to load all the food and yes the beef did come from Argentina <laughs> we were loading big boxes of I have to say Argentina. that as an Australian I'm deeply disturbed at that. <laughs> there you go it was cheaper mate <laughs> Uh, okay, so that's where we were, and that's the background to how we got on board and the sort of stuff we've been uh, doing. You know, I hope that's a, you know, I hope that helps. I seem to remember from the first time we had when we had a, I think it was a one-on-one -on -one discussion for SimSec years ago on the Falcons podcast. You told me something interesting, which is always stuck in my mind. You went through the engineering ordering board to reduce everything down to what they needed for war. And then your boss came in and said, no, turn it back. Do yeah. would keep everything going as if it was peacetime, yeah. because that will keep our aircraft going best. Yeah. I'll put that into context, which, which, which I think actually picks up from two, two, from two days out. Just rewind. As we steamed out, I was not out on deck at the time because I was actually fa fairly busy because we because we actually started flying our planes 15 minutes after clearing the fort. Yeah, we were straight in. I was in the aircraft control room and the aircraft control room officer said, come on, let's have a bet. What date do you think we'll be back? And he got his China graph board out and we all took turns at how we, what date we thought we'd be back. And he wrote them on the white bulkhead. In China Graph, when Invincible was scrapped, I'm reliably informed that bit of bulkhead was cut out because we actually put a bit of plate glass on on top of it. Most of the guesses were we'd be back in one month to six weeks. My boss was was actually only four days out on his guess, and he said we're going to be out here for six months. And this was a and after about a couple of days out, we had a big squadron brief, and it's something you don't forget. And it was very deliberate. And it was, you may think that the diplomatic moves mean this is another false alarm. We are going to treat this for real. We have got to prepare for a marathon haul. We cannot treat this as a sprint. We have to be ready for a marathon. And every single thing that Squadron did then was built around that core assumption. We'd had some additional crew flown on board to bulk us up. That's what we would have done if we'd gone to war and we get, you know, under the existing Cold War thing. And 
the uh, work then began to prepare us for how we're going to do this. And essentially, we used the trip down to Ascension to get the squadron and the ship really fixed up. Good reason for that. Aircraft, the ship was designed for eight Seekings. We operated in the year before with nine Seekings and about four gusting five sea jets. The day we sailed, we sailed with 11 Seekings, two fleet immediate reserves, eight jets, two links. So suddenly the ship was pretty busy. So the first 14 days down to Ascension were taken up with getting the ship up to the pitch. The next days from Ascension down to 1st of May into the TEZ was spent getting the squadron up to killing pitch, up to, up to fighting pitch. So that was our deliberate two-stage approach. So on the way down, we were kept at peacetime ops. As we sailed from Ascension, I got a signal. I happened to be on watch. A signal arrived rated, um, I think it was immediate, and it was flag officer Flotilla 3, who was when we were at sea, that those times was our flag engineering authority. And it directed us, it didn't suggest, it directed that we go to what's called contingency servicing. And contingency basically meant you took all of the routine servicing through that in a heat, or rather you didn't do it until you could find the time to do it. So basically you could defer any servicing op as, as soon as you could do it. It also cut a whole load of ops out. And the whole idea of that was for an operational contingency and the staff directed us to do it. I thought, well, that's important. So I got all the, I was sat up with all the books and I started going through the books and preparing them all and doing all the stuff, you know, with, you know, by, by, you know and I had to put in hundreds of entries, ref this, ref this, you know. And while I was doing it, it all went extremely quiet. And I looked around, looking like this, and my uh, boss was behind me. And he said in a rather low and quiet voice, what are you doing, Steve? And I said, well, sir, we've got this signal here from FOF3 Engineering, and I'm putting the aircraft onto contingency of servicing as directed. He said, uh, Steve, who do you work for? <laughs> I said, well, I work for you, sir. Did I tell you to do that, Steve? I said, no, sir. So he said, right, Steve, stop doing that. Put the aircraft back where they were and be in my cabin at midday, which was about 45 minutes off. And I went down to find I joined just a word on what this squadron engineers were. And I do apologise if this is a squadron century. That's what I know. But if you want to, me to, I can go out. We had the AEO, who was a lieutenant commander. Myself, the deputy, who was a lieutenant we had another lieutenant who was the assistant AEO. However, on our squadrons, they were always balanced out. I was a fairly fresh young young Dartmouth trained guy, joined directly as a midshipman. The other guy, Dougie, uh, Lieutenant Doug Craig, who gets a mention, was the assistant. Do not think he was junior to me. It was just to tell us apart. Doug was an SD guy who'd who'd come up through the uh, who'd actually come up through the ranks. So they always at our level, they used to balance that out. The fourth man in the cabin was our senior maintenance rating, who was a charge chief artificer. We sat down and the AEO just looked and said, right, here are my instructions 
for what we're going to do. And then he gave us the instructions. The first one was, we are going to remain on modified peacetime servicing. We will stop doing a very limited range of survey ops. But he said, we are in this for a marathon. The only way we're going to keep on top of this is to keep all the aircraft at the highest possible pitch. We will not have, repeat, there will be no hangar queens on this op. Every aircraft is to be kept at top pitch because we're going to need them all. And therefore, we're going to cut any corners. And by the way, he said, because we're short of people, we can't afford to stand down after 14 days. You've heard that number before and recover the aircraft because we're going to need to put all the men to bed because we're going to be exhausted. So we have to keep on top of it using less people. Therefore, what we're going to do is the watch chiefs, our watch controllers, will be given the authority to stand down as many of the watches they deem they can. That will be under their control, pointing at me and Doug, not yours, unless you have to step in. So we gave the watch chiefs that job. And their job was to try to husband our most precious, important thing, our men. First page. This is uh, this is factored into the design of the the Queen Elizabeth class, the new carriers, because the thing is, people always talk about how big they are, how massive. The job you're doing in the Invincible class with all that, and then yeah. the you know the space you're having to do that, and the constraints you're having to do the manpower. If you are thinking about doing that now with far more complicated aircraft, yes, they're still viable, but they're far more complicated. You need the space. Yeah, the one thing that she's not short of, she has lots of spare space, but it's but you've actually segued into a very important point. Let's, let's just talk about where the manpower comes to look after planes at sea, right? Because that's an important thing. It's not all the squadron. The squadron embarks with a bunch of men. And if you look at the scheme of complement now for a Merlin squadron, it's not much different from where from from these sort of numbers. And it's not much different from F-35. Don't forget, lots of things drive it apart from just the complexity of the aircraft. How many bombs you how many bombs you're going to drop? How many trips you're going to do per day? All that goes into that staff planning. We were driven around 24 hours ops for 14 days and then stop. I'm repeating this because it's important. Now let's look at the ship. The ship's support to the squadron comes in a number of ways. Obviously there's the hotel stuff. So they provide you know, the power and the accommodation and the food. Let, let's take that as a given. Although one of the reasons the QE gets away with a lot less, of course, is all that plant is looked after far fewer people because it's much better. A lot of the ancillary plant on HMS in Invincible was desperately bad, desperately bad. Um, we never had a reliable supply of steam on, on that ship. And why did we need steam? Because you need steam to make water. <laughs> so we were short of water every single day I served on that ship, every single day. However, let's look at the air engineering department, the AED. They handle the uh, workshops. They are the people who uh, look after the weapon, the first part of the weapons supply. Uh, they supply a lot of other support. They had a lot of the uh, the air stores are under these sort of under these sort of applied the 
under the supply department. And quite a lot of our squadron that came on board, when we got on board, were actually given to the ship. And they were called augmenta augmentation personnel. On our squadron, which I think from memory had a complement, some like about 126, about 28 of them. So, for instance, the chief petty officer looking after the sonar in the workshops was from our squadron. The ship didn't really require that chap when we were off. So he came on with. We had people who went into air weapons workshops, electrical workshops, mechanical workshops. We had stewards who joined the ship. We had some uh, aircraft uh, handlers. They joined the ship. So there was a bit of so there's a bit of a, a, a blend. But again, whole ship built around specific operational scenario. So in terms of the numbers of people, the things that are going to really stress you, which we found and are actually mentioned in this engineering report, was the huge number of weapon loads that we have to do. And we've never practiced anything even remotely like that. And that did lead us to our first real massive crumble of the um, trip down, which was weapons supply. Um, Sharky Ward, you've all heard of him. Uh, either a couple of days out from Portsmouth, I, remember, I don't exactly remember when, I think it was be, before we got to Ascension, said, look, I want to fire a sidewinder, let's get the weapons supply going, to which the ship responded, it's going to take two days. Um, there was a certain <laughs> amount of surprise. And this, in my personal view, I could be wrong, was an artifact of a botched study that was done in 1977 by the Royal Navy called the McLoon Report by an Admiral McLoon or Captain McLoon. Oh, and no. he looked at small ships flights ops and said, well, this whole business of having air engineering ratings who are very expensive to train to look after the provision of air weapons is all wrong. We ought to give that to the supply department because all you do is you embark a, a, a weapon and you give it to the ship's flight. Um, this, of course, didn't really hold true for an Invincible class, which had terrible uh, magazines. I mean, really, really bad. But what you had to do was all the bits down in the mags had to be assembled and put together to be sent up through the train to the flight deck. Well, they weren't even fitted up to do that. And in fact, I remember under my training, it was so bad that if you went training cabin door gunning with a Lynx, they, the supply department would issue you with a box of bullets. But when you handed the box back, you had to sign a lost form, a, a, a lost stores form for the number of bullets you'd used up. <laughs> and short story long, we realized that our air weapons supply organization on the ship was not really functional. So we'd sailed in that condition. What they did was they flew down to Ascension, an old and bold experienced chap who I think had been one of the last air weapons supply officers on the old Ark. And we basically, they handed the entire air weapons supply chain spaces over to the air engineering department. And yeah, I think it was before we got to Ascension, because I remember all of our air weapons guys and all of the guys from the ship and all the guys from the 801 were brigaded into an amazing team who were cutting, welding, painting and polishing everything 
And about two days before we got to uh, Ascension, very proudly, the air weapons and magazines st stood up and were formally inspected. So that was one thing that we had to put right. But that air weapons supply org is a big, big eater of men. On the US CVN, air weapons supply takes has got about 250 people. Now, if you look on the QE, it's got about three. So quite a big thing because they've got that very Gucci uh, automated mm. thing that they do. Have, yeah, I'm still slightly worried that only it's only free. Don't uh, don't take this the wrong way, Steve. I know it's a Gucci system, but there's always <laughs> yeah. the, there's the part of me that worries what happens if the system goes wrong. Of course, that's the ship's AED. Don't forget, your squadron has to have enough people to just physically handle the bombs and bullets and missiles coming up. So there's still a big load of people on the squadron. That's so good. that makes me to... feel happier. Yeah. That, yeah. That's yeah. safer. Okay. So we were about, yeah. I think we are just, you were just at the point where you're talking about, you know, just going down from Ascension to the Falklands. What was that like? Um, it was very bizarre but from the engineering point of view it was pretty straight forward our comms worked well we had a, a paper-based system of communication which actually worked extremely well and what we did was our our main thing was to get in the groove and get the ripple going because the seeking had a propensity to crumble after 48 after about 48 hours in it would you would just have a crumble and all the aircraft would go down largely driven by the sonar which uh, in the end from our stats here about 45 percent of the unserviceabilities total unserviceabilities on our aircraft were around the sonar a one nine five very difficult thing to keep going and we knew that the best way to keep it going was simply to keep the aircraft going as far as possible and not to shut them down uh, and to that end, my AEO introduced another uh, change. About a month before, about February of that year, I think around that, we moved on to a system called continuous charge. I'm going to get a bit geeky here. I do apologise, but bear with me. Don't worry, we love geekiness. We're when you put an aircraft in here, you do a before flight inspection. When it comes down, you do an after flight inspection. If it comes down to the gun, go flying again, you do a turnaround inspection. So the pilot signs the plane out, he lands on and signs it back in again. You shut it down, you do a turnaround in, in inspection, you then, the next pilot signs it out, off you go. And that will vary depending how broken the aircraft is when it comes back. Well, for some while, because we were in the ASW role, we did rotors running crew changes. We evolved a rather clunky system of, you know, sort of uh, adapting the flight servicing documents so that you would actually be able to do this. However, in February of the year, we'd taken on the thing called continuous charge and CCO, continuous charge ops. This was borrowed from the uh, commandos what this did was we signed the aircraft out onto a con continuous charge sheet then the pilot bringing it back would hand it over to the next guy without 
any intervention from us, as long as the aircraft had hours to fly. And he would note anything in the continuous charge certificate that wasn't quite right with the aircraft, but the next pilot had to accept that. And so did we as the duty as the duty AO. The wrinkle my boss introduced was said, well, look, some of these things that go wrong with the aircraft, like an unserviceable uh, ARC 52, that was the main UHF radio, which was a 1950s piece of equipment. My father was installing those in scimitars in 1961. OK, and they went wrong for a pastime. <laughs> so he said, could we change them rotors running? I said, well, you've got to open up the nose bay door. He said, yes. OK. Could we change it? And the answer was, well, yeah, you get in there, you pull the you pull the power off the thing, you make sure you turn the power off and you go in there and with the rotors turning, you get in the front of the aircraft, you change this 68 pound box. Single channel, UHF, 68 pound. And so we did that. And as the duty AO, I had to make sure that the tools we took out to do that job came back in. Other squadrons did this. We were not the only squadron that did this, but I believe we, we won first. And uh, by the end of the uh, operation, we were changing about 25 or 30 boxes. We, we, we could change just about every piece of the sonar, including the dunking part. We, we could change it, rotors. Are running the way of doing that which was pioneered by 826 on the was if the aircraft had an unserviceable un dunking by the way this thing is six feet long and takes three men to pick it up it's not small they would come to the ship with the uh, and run out about 40 feet of cable they would put a coconut mat on the flight deck off to one side of where the aircraft would land they would come down until the sonar body was on the coconut map, the aircraft then transitioned across to down and land. So that so it's now so the cable snaked out. And while it was still burning and turning, the guys would change the would take it off and put a fresh one on. So we did all that sort of stuff because the whole thing was to keep the aircraft burning and turning all the time. Top line figure of a result from that. Our average serviceability for the Falklands deployment was 82%. That's that's 82% of our aircraft available and fit to go flying right the way through the op. I'm going to emphasize that because I'm fairly sure our listeners probably won't realize, the ones who do will realize how big a thing that is, but if you don't, 82% is frankly near enough magical levels of serviceability when you're looking at pre historical precedents of aircraft. Yeah, it is just amazing. You would usually plan a fly pro on 35 to 40. So it was that was that was an amazing. So yeah, you kept the, uh, the helicopters flying. But what about the pilots? I'm sure that they would have been um, praying for breakdowns to get a bit of extra sleep. <laughs> That's a that's a really good question, and I think it's as well. And I'm, once again, I stress that when I say we, I, I want to stress that none of these big decisions were taken by me. They were taken by my boss. Um, the pilots were interesting. We'd had a number of additional crews 
brought in. They, they were crewed up into four. The crew of an anti-submarine seeking was a P-1, a P-2, uh, an observer and an air crewman who was non-commissioned, who ran the sonar and the winch. Normally, on a naval aircraft, it's quite common for the captain of the aircraft to be the observer. Now, it's very interesting because we'll know that in the in every air force in the world, the captain of the aircraft has to be the guy who's always hands on the stick and throttle. Normally, in the dark blue, on, in fact, on a Lynx, it's unusual for the observer not to be the captain. The observer is fighting the aircraft because the purpose of the aircraft is to fight. The legacy of the swordfish in the interwar period. Yeah, there you go. It's glorious. So, one of the things that I saw occurring, I wasn't involved in doing it, was that our CO, our senior pilot, and our senior observer were carefully and deliberately shuffling the pack. And in that first 14 days, they were shuffling the pack to look at the best crew composition for each aircraft crew. So the the guys function generally as crews, so they work as a crew. So it's very important that the pilots, the observers had it even worse, because before we took off, the observers had to go down and get an ops brief down in the ship. And when they came back, that's going to go and do an ops debrief down in the ship. The pilots could just stumble out of their racks, get a briefing, a briefing room and go. So the observers, for them, it was punishing. The pilots shuffling was really interesting together with the observers have any of you guys heard of a phrase that's used these days in air safety called cockpit gradient yeah no yes once but i'm still not sure about it very well known psychological thing that if you put a really experienced senior guy as the p1 and a junior joe first job as the p2 when that aircraft encounters a problem, it's kind of nice if the P2 is watching what the P1 is doing. And if the P1 cocks up, the P2 will call you, call you out. Now you, 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 now, you expect the P1 to do it, but the P2, that's one of the reasons he's there. Well, there have been a lot of crashes where the P2 felt so awed by the P1 that they, they didn't, they said, shtum. So it was noticeable that our crews were shuffled to put the right person with the right person to maintain that. Now, they didn't use the term crew gradient, but I can absolutely assure you that the fleet air arm of the Royal Navy were very conscious of that. They were always also very conscious of fatigue. So what happened was the senior pilot and the senior observer essentially watched the crews coming up for their briefs. And on some occasions they would say, mate, back to bed, I'll take this. That also gave them their chance to go up and see how the rest of the crew were going. So they were, if you like, riding on on that. Really very, very deliberate. And in fact, in these ships, I've not only got the ship's engineering report, I've got the full ship's report from Invincible and um, another ship. They actually said that pilot fatigue was a big issue, both for the jets and for us. But yeah, they took very, very... Uh, you know, very, very key steps. Of course, as you remember, we had one particular P2 who needed uh, even more consideration. That was his Royal Highness, the Prince. 
And I'd like to put one thing out here. I will not say anything more to break the uh, confidences we as a squadron share. But I will say this. He did not have special aircraft. If I had a pint for every time I've had to explain <laughs> to some mouth-breathing idiot that he had a special aircraft, he absolutely did not. And in fact, there were restrictions placed on what he could do but i'm here to tell you in public that they were as minimal as they could be and they were a lot less than the formal guidance that we had been given and our co made the call on that and i can absolutely assure you that that particular p2 was not was the restrictions on what he could do were extremely extremely small Okay, I, you know, there's a lot of stuff goes around. I, I remember having this conversation with you once before, and you saying basically a similar thing. And I respond, my response was, "So you'd basically be drunk the whole time if you had a pint for every time someone said to you." Every time, <laughs> you'd be you'd be Jamie. Uh, I, I, I suspect that this is this is it. it kind of is a, a very key point. Um, what you've been describing here about it's very tempting for a lot of a lot of the time when you look either at what might happen in the future or what did happen in the past or what might have happened in the past for people to go oh yes well this ship had x number of aircraft and this ship had y number of aircraft and therefore top trumps this the more aircraft more capable yeah. this this aircraft this this fleet wins and they forget that the human component of it if you like you said with the the to the two crew the p1 and the p2 if if one fleet might have the technically superior aircraft, they might have the bigger fleet. If they mismatch their crews and they don't let them get enough sleep because maybe they're trying to do massive alpha strikes day in, day out, yeah. by day yeah. three, you're going to have aircraft falling out of the sky for no apparent reason, whilst or, the smaller fleet might, with the, with a deficient crew rotor system and well-matched crews, they might only yeah. be operating at half the number of strikes per day. But a week down the line, they'll still be doing strikes whilst the other ship is going to be watching aircraft in the drink. We had a bit of good luck, and then we had some good... Uh, ship. And this talks back to the shape of the ship, which you might find of use. Invincible was designed with all of the air group accommodation was above the uh, waterline. All of it. Which meant when we stood our men down and didn't have to go on watch, they could basically stay in their pits they could stay in, in their bed hermes all of the air group were below the waterline so as soon as the ship went to action stations which was normally about zero zero eight everybody had to be out of the cabins my late brother who was a c who, who was a jet pilot on 800 on hermes had to sleep right the way through the falklands campaign on a camp bed in the bar that's our, the worst place to sleep. <laughs> our, our, yeah. Most of the guys maintaining the aircraft on that ship had to sleep in sleeping bags on the deck. Okay. Yeah. So we were able to put our guys away into nice comfy beds and keep them going. The, the last thing I ought to say was, you know, we, we, we talked about the build-up. I've talked about the build-up. But later on, uh, Dr. Clark at the prompt. I think the capstone of this is 
how much did we actually fly? So perhaps as we go through the various bits and pieces, the capstone he says, okay, what did we actually do with that? And how did it go? Because I've told you about all the preps and all, all the preps. Um, so we've done contingency servicing. Oh yeah, mods. Um, one of the jobs we had was to do cabal, uh, to was to be able to uh, work with special special ops, and so for that we were fitted with cabin door guns. All we had a nice big Gucci piece of roll equipment, which was a mounting for GPMG, 7.62 GPMG, and that was a very Gucci piece of equipment that plugged into the deck, and it had mounting for a nice big box of ammunition. It swung in and swung out and had stops for the gun the whole nine yards. That was all fine and good until we heard that uh, they were all, in fact, the day before we sailed, we were given instructions by the staff that all of our SUMOD 5004, you, yeah, I think that's it, 5004, were to be transferred to HMS Hermes, who needed them. So we sailed and about two days out we got an early brief on the possible air threat we would face which meant our aircraft were going to be up there absolutely defenseless so um one of our pilots who was also an aeo who's a maintenance test pilot was given the job of designing and building a new gpmg mount which he did from start to finish and test flew and test fired in 24 hours flat and it was basically a bit of pipe bolted to the deck, but we still had stops and we fashioned a stowage. The only thing it didn't do is it didn't catch all the spent brass. So that just went, that just went over the side. And we made nine of those in the next three days. So we were equipped then. That was the, uh, that was really one of the uh, 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 big things that we had to do. Gave him the keys to the to the workshop, eh? And uh, there's not know. much you cannot do with a mechanical workshop and highly skilled uh, people. Yeah, I think I think this again. It 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 it's something I picked up on actually reading about both the Falklands and and the Second World War is the fact that. It especially, I mean, it happens in a lot of different navies, but especially it seems in the Royal Navy when you are confronted with a situation and it's wartime and all those usual testing and prototyping and proposal regulations go out the window. All of a sudden you find people who are incredibly inventive and able to put together things very, very quickly. Um, I know, for example, I think the like the Sea Harrier went out without a jamming pod and somebody very quickly figured out how to strip down a tornado jamming pod and cram it into a container that could fit on the Harrier. And uh, my, my, my favourite story from that whole period is the um, when they sent the Vulcan down and they didn't have a way of getting long-range communications and they tried mounting a, a satellite communication system in the tail and they couldn't get it to stay fixed because, of course, the tail cone hadn't been designed to fix one. So someone just came up with a couple of... Uh, gallon drums of araldite and just said right hold it in place lads and just put, filled the tail cone full of araldite it's like right it's never moving again <laughs> well, i have to say that that sort of thing one thing i would gently demur on and i think this is really important is that all the regulations stayed in place we didn't throw anything out of the 
a window. And I've spoken to people from the Gulf War, from other, I'm not going to get into any uh, dark blue, light blue stuff. But I'll just say representatives of another Air Force have told me that when they went to the Gulf War, they just threw out all the service. They just flew and flew and flew. And my question was, well, how long did you do that for? They said, well, we were we we did that for four days and then and then we were rotated out. So here's the thing. Here's the pay thing. My squadron, our squadron, kept the ripple going for 72 days. After 14 days of the ripple from the 1st of May, we received a signal from the flag telling us we, it was now our turn to stand down. We could have a 48 hour stand down. So we pulled the aircraft, the aircraft came back and and another squadron were going to take it up. We're going to take our place on the screen. We, as the aircraft came down, we struck them down, got them down in a hangar. We're getting all the men into bed, didn't turn the next watch to. And uh, about 15 minutes, uh, no, about half an hour, I can't say, um, bit of a problem with the other uh, planes. Can you get your aircraft back up again? So, okay, so we got the men back out of bed. I got out of bed, we got the aircraft back up and threw the aircraft back up in the air. 14 days went by and uh, they said, okay, now it's your time to stand down and uh, away you go. This time we hadn't even struck an aircraft down before they said, oh, can you get back up again? So the third time it happened after 42 days, we didn't even bother the planes down. We just kept them burning and turning. We just wait. Yeah, we'll, have, yeah, we'll get them back up. 72 days. We kept 24 hours. Three gusting four aircraft in the air, plus another four aircraft during daylight hours doing what ended up taking up just about half of our flying, which was HDS, helicopter delivery service, moving stores, moving people, moving stuff. So that's what we did, 72 hours, 72 days, we kept that up. So there was no question of just flying the aircraft up until they broke, because if they broke, we didn't have the people to fly the aircraft and fix them at the, at the time. I'd, I'd, I'd realize if there's one thing I'd like to put over from this, it's that we absolutely did not go red mist and rah, you know, start tying bandanas. Same with the jets as, as well. There was a very, very strong, and in fact, when a couple of our pilots stepped out of, of, of line and did some really not very clever things out there, our senior pilot, during the op stood them down and said no flying for you reflect on your stupidity he and the senior observer stood in and they kept a firm leash because we knew the guys were going very tired and if you're tired the last thing you do is start playing off piste you know people die skiing not when, just because they go off piste they often go off piste at the end of the day when they're, when they're already not not their strongest. So there was an absolute overt, deliberate aim to say, right, we're going to have to run 
hard and hot, but we're going to find a way to keep it going. And that was a big payoff. Discipline from top to bottom, basically, isn't it? It's um, very much a focus, focus on task. Our captain played a huge part. Hermes told her crew that when the ship stood to, uh, as soon as the daylight came, the ship stood to full action stations. Terminology. Ship normally in ops would have been in what's called defence watches. So the ship is essentially working one watch in two. Instantly, that's what our squadrons did all the time. When you go to a high threat, the whole ship has to stand to. And it's like the uh, it's like in the States, you know, hands, 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 you know, you know, bells going off, everybody going. So everybody has to go down and take their action stations in the ship. That our captain, Captain JJ Black, made an incredibly important decision following discussions with our COs, who said, when we stand to action stations, the squadrons are going to, their off watches can stay in their beds as long as they remain fully clothed. So that was a huge call. That was really big. And it was a it was vital to our squadron and the jets being able to continue their work. So good sense, good calm. The, the but also, a, also a consequence of design. I, I guess it wouldn't have made that sort of decision if you had been sleeping below decks. Exactly so. I think that was a, you know, that was, that was a, a very, very important. In fact, most of the squadron's ratings accommodation, senior ratings accommodation was on number two deck, so right below. I think there's now a new measure of top trumps we have to add into on aircraft carrier design, <coughs> where the accommodation is. And basically, <laughs> if the accommodation's down below deck, it affects everything. Well, we do. Well, we do remember that the Americans actually went to the extent of putting an uh, a, a, a elevator in on on their ships to get the uh, pilots from the briefing room up up actually up to the actually up to the flight deck. Sorry, not elevator escalator. Yeah. Yeah. Ours were quite good. Uh, our briefing rooms were on a number two deck. Um, so they were up before it's a little bit of a trek for the crew to get past, but actually no problem. Uh, the ship's, the survival equipment bay was not far out of the way. They actually went there on their way from their uh, pits to the uh, briefing room uh, and then went and got the last bit from there, um, the aircrew refreshment bar, the uh, uh, greasy spoon was next to there. Um, for me, of course, it was slightly different because the hangar was down on number four deck. So for me, I did burn a certain amount of, uh, uh, you know, I burnt a good few calories. Up, just, up. Uh, well, one, one thing you said a bit earlier intrigues me, um, and I guess it's, um, it's just based on my um, fascination with looking at the uh, damage control reports for the likes of HMS Illustrious and Formidable and Indomitable during World War II. Um, you mentioned before that the magazines on Illustrious were atrocious. In what way? Was, was there uh, an overemphasis on safety 
for those magazines or was it just not properly thought through from uh, generally speaking? Yeah, that's a very good uh, point. And th thank you, because I had missed a very important thing. They were safe. They were all the uh, magazines were located right the way, right, right the way down. Uh, the lift arrangements that brought the uh, stuff up was reasonably good. Um, torpedoes, for instance, came up fully uh, made up. Sidewinders had to have uh, an uh, 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 assembly job done on them uh, as they came up. And there was a dedicated, in fact, there were two dedicated weapons delivery points on the flight deck. Uh, so that actually worked quite well. No, the problem with them was the internal arrangement of the magazines was really poor. So, for instance, we had stowage, I think, for like 13 1,000-pound uh, 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 bombs. 13, one, three. That was it. Um, we had a big stowage, a huge stowage for Sea Eagles, but we didn't have Sidewinder stowage was only the sidewinder can only be stored in its crated up and it was broken down into the motor, the warhead, the DCG, pins. There was almost no space to stow a built up sidewinder. They eventually had to be built up and stowed, uh, stowed elsewhere. The flight deck layout was not great. However, the unused deck space to starboard of the superstructure could be could be filled up. Um, the only problem there was that because that space was also a very big play park for the executive branch with ships, boats and that, the deck was absolutely festooned with ring bolts and obstructions. So actually getting the weapon trolleys in and out of there was a bit of a bind. Didn't just follow them off. <laughs> uh, so we couldn't do that because, because because the damn things had to be there so we could replenish. Ah. Oh, these things so, are in the way. So there was a lot of work. But that, of course, stems all the way back. So don't forget, they pushed the jets on at, you know, at, at mm. free level. For, for our point of view, it was pretty good. Uh, the mm. stowages were bad. It's just that the rate of the stuff that we were doing, and of course, we don't have to up, we don't like to load the stuff. We have to unload, we have to get them off the planes. Mm -hmm. And this was normally done at night because it didn't get light till about half nine, ten, and it went dark again about half past four. So most of our unloads and loads were done at night. And one of the big problems we had was that the handheld pusses electric torch that our men were supposed to use was absolutely useless so we actually jobbed up a local sort of uh, a lighting uh, a mod to try to do that but that was our big factor was the huge number of unloading from loads that, that we did where did you get well, the again, lights I, I, from I, I, to do this oh, sorry wait, what? To do the lighting mod where did you get the lights from uh we made it um somewhere here uh, if you give me a moment electrical flight control system anti system fuel consumption so secure speed weapon loading uh weapon loading loading teams mark torpedo servicing there was the worst case 
uh, lighting, handheld torches were inadequate. Consideration should be given to developing a discrete dim lighting positioned above the four weapon stations run from the battery buzz bar. As an interesting measure, a plate containing two battery operated lamps was fitted to a loading adapter. This idea utilised two assault life jacket lights was positioned. So basically what they did was they would take this adapter out, clipped it onto the weapon loading adapter, and then while they were doing the load, it actually gave them just a little bit of light. Again, more on-the-fly ingenuity. Well, very interestingly, one of the things, I actually know the man who was involved with this, one of the big things on the QE is they have paid extra special attention to lighting on the flight deck. And they have done a lot of work to make sure that the people working on the aircraft have actually have some have some ability to see. It is very, very difficult to put over to people, especially when you you know, especially when you're on ops and the ship is dark. It's very difficult to put over just how dark it can get out there on a flight deck, especially down there in you know, that time of year because it's thick cloud all the time. It was as to, anything. We, we, we mentioned earlier before the podcast um, a bit of a uh, discussion about lessons that were learnt and uh, what lessons were unlearned. Um, I, I just can't help but think of the, 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 this sounds so much like the experience that the British Pacific Fleet had when yeah. they went to Okinawa. They had ships that were built to carry 33 aircraft, carrying 54 aircraft. Though those individual aircraft were much bigger and heavier than the 33 they were originally designed to, to operate, although they admittedly had lifts and equipment designed for much heavier weights. But the, the, the one factor that held those ships to 54 aircraft was, A, not enough room for the deck handling and weapons handling crews. Mm. So they, you know, th there were times when they carried 60-plus aircraft, but they simply couldn't get enough people berthed in those ships in order to load the bombs, offload the bombs, refuel the aircraft, then move the aircraft forward and backwards in deck parts. Um, now, I mean, that was the, the, the gap between World War II and the Falklands was yeah. 40 years. So we've now had yeah. 40 years since the Falklands. Um, we're, we, do, we don't seem to have repeated that same mistake, for, at yeah. least in this arena. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, I'll actually quote from the report here. Uh, during the period 9th of April to 28th of June, 265 torpedo loads carried out. Only 35 were rotors running. Similarly, there were 298 Mark 11 depth charge loads. 33 were hot. The uh, low number of hot loads and reloads. Worth considering that training emphasis should be altered to accommodate the experience where hours of darkness was experienced, need to maintain dark and ship was rigidly enforced. The usual scenario for weapon loading was therefore cold load of live weapons in total darkness and in very poor weather conditions. So the training background we were doing was all rotors running. Considerations for increasing the realism by working up to loading of live weapons on a static aircraft, but with a minimal light. That weapon, that that one was learned, and I can actually tell you it was learned because in 1995, 
I was in the Ministry of Defence, and one of the projects my team was running was a new weapon-loading hoist for all three armed services, uh, predominantly for the uh, Royal Navy and the RAF. So it was going to be used on Lynx, Sea King, Jaguar, Tornado. It was a handheld, it was a hand-powered hoist. And I very vividly remember we formed a, an assessment team and all the reps of all the aircraft went to all the loads to see how it was done. And so we pulled all the ideas. This was incentive that this job was, uh, this idea was not mine. It was a very good civil servant who was doing the job. And when we went to Portland, uh, we I'd been to Coningsby and Marham and Coltrose. When we went to Portland, the light blue guys were quite astonished that we went into uh, uh, and they said we'll do the test load at seven o'clock tonight and um they had a links and we went into the shed and the guys came out with with, with special torches strapped to the head and they said right lights out and we were plunged into darkness and the team went so that was certainly a thing that was but you know that was done we actually did uh readjust our to help with that and another adjustment we did speaking about design of the ship um because of the restrictions on how many people could be on the ship normally a the carrier's aed would carry quite a number of aircraft movement ratings hermes for instance carried 52 Invincible carried 12 and the statement in the scheme of complement was the squadron will now have to take part in moving their, their planes just actually go and do it so one of the things we did was we reduced the amount of work the stewards did and we retrained a number of our stewards to be to be able to work up on the to be able to work up on the flight deck as you say very much like the the experience of the Pacific, but right the scientists. said, "What was it like?" It was very strange. All of the diplomatic stuff was going down, but really and truly, our direction from the ship was extremely clear. We were going. We were. We had to be ready on the day we sailed from. Uh, ascension to actually go to full you know full, full you know re, you know to you know go in the end the we flew for 72 days the, the other thing i would add is that we flew at approximately steadily two and three quarter times our maximum allowed peacetime uh, 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 schedules so we were fairly busy do you have a figure for how many flight hours your squadron accomplished because it's it's the thing i'm sort of Ooh, yeah I'm, I'm trying to think of during this time because the amount your serviceability of 82 percent 72 days i'm just yeah. there there is an estimate going around in my head of how many hours of flight hours that must have created uh i can tell you exactly actually i think i've got some totals here uh, it was pretty awesome. That's the monthly breakdown. Finals August. Monthly grand totals. Uh, well, we, I did have some. 
let's see, April hours, hours, miscellaneous sources, monthly grand totals. So ASW 2260. Surfaces uh, 650. HDS 1000. MISC 300. So 23, 29, 29, 39, 39, 42, 4200 hours from um, April from sailing to, and that was only to mid, uh, that was only to very uh, uh, first week in August. So you got your values so, for money's worth out of uh, both yourselves, the crew and the equipment. And the final coda is when we got back, all of our aircraft were fully in date for all their servicing. And I can tell you because I was responsible for the material state, our aircraft were assessed by the staff to be in a superior material state. I mean, is, is, is that a gold stamp or what? <laughs> I mean, well, seriously, you, you, you hear stories of aircraft uh, yeah. and equipment after the Gulf War, um, yeah. you know, having just basically been thrashed. I suppose that that's the result of um, throwing away the uh, books, isn't it? It's Well, it, it can be a number of things, and I don't wish to say, well, you know, we, we were stand out there were plenty of uh, people who did some inc did some things on on that but the other thing i would add is <laughs> a coda you know if you do well your reward is more more work. hard work. <laughs> and the navy has a rule that for every month you do at sea you get an extra half a day off so we had three days of extra leave <laughs> and on day two of my leave my wife not having seen me for six months I and the duty watch were recalled back into our squadron to be told it had been decided that we would give five of our aircraft away to another squadron and be equipped with five more aircraft equipped with the upgraded radar. And the five aircraft we were given were so unserviceable, it wasn't true. And my plane captains cried. They actually cried in the hangar. So literally, we were on leave for a few weeks. And when we came back, we had all the planes more or less had to be restarted, re-equipped, and we had five new planes. And over the next couple of months, we more or less swapped every plane out. So the work didn't stop. But I do think that it is that, you know, I suppose I'll board this long diatribe down. Keep the aircraft running. If you can do an engines running crew change, do it because you will get so many more flyouts. If you can do an engines running rearm refuel, do it. Whatever you do, do it. Even if you have to adjust your fly pro to do it, do it. And that is one one thing that, you know, I think doesn't actually happen enough. Although I'm very pleased to see the film from the people out in the QE. That's exactly what they're doing. That is good. And it's... it's, it's so... Now, I also seem to remember from my experience of talking with you before, and I have actually gone back and listened to part listened to parts of the podcast. I have to admit, I didn't listen too much because I keep cringing at my own voice. Uh, um, Same but, here. I, don't know, I, I know my voice is terrible, 
But leaving that to one side, you didn't just, from experience, you didn't just stay on Invincible. You ended up going to the forward operating base at certain points and other things wandering around? Uh, yes. Would you like me to? Oh, yes. Okay. Well, uh, I do know, I will say one thing, because you might notice that Drac is, his, his face is yeah, not hearing him. He's on the phone and he's I going to be really that. upset he missed asking this question. So, okay. <laughs> <laughs> this, is the, uh, this is the one. Uh, right. Um, situation that affects me, I, I really went through the bulk of the op, just doing the just doing the grind. So, I was eight hours on, eight hours off. Interestingly, that's a 96 hour week. You know, I mentioned the senior pilot and the senior observer checking when the crew's got too, you know, got too mm -hmm. spaced out. My boss did exactly the same, and he would let me run for about 12 to 14 days before I just got completely spaced out, and he would just send me off to bed. So there was a position where I, um, uh, well, there were quite a few positions that I had to do that, so he'd give me a, of a, a complete day in bed, which was great. One particular night, I'd gone to bed. This was after the ground war had begun. And uh, as I understand it, and I may, may be wrong, but there was a requirement for additional aircraft ashore to carry out night flying work in West Falklands. Um, and they wanted them to be radar equipped. Most of the aircraft that were ashore in the Falklands were flying by you know, they didn't actually fly at night much, except, of course, for the night vision goggle equipped guys. So we actually did. So I had turned in, I think, at eight o'clock that night and my door rolled open at about 11 to reveal my boss. I said, right, Steve, get up, get dressed. You are to take a detachment of engineers ashore at 04 in two sea kings to conduct night flying ops around West Falkland. Senior pilot is the, is the detachment commander. He's down in the briefing room, report to him, the, and the senior management will be there as well. So I towed down to the briefing room, got told what was on, got given a couple of uh, hours to assemble my, my team. I was allowed 10, I think, including me. And the stores that we were that we could pack into the back of our two Sea Kings, plus some bits and pieces. Then we had to find tents. Well, of course, all the, the military tents had gone down on the Atlantic conveyor. But fortunately, our ship's store still, the ship's recreation stores still had some civilian pup tents. And we drew our cold weather kit which in my case, case, and I'm not making this up, my string vest was actually dates down to 1916. What? <laughs> so, <laughs> at about zero, I seem to remember some... It's a fine vintage, a fine vintage. <laughs> some, some, anyone, some, anyone who accuses the Navy of being, you know, wasteful <laughs> has to hear that sort of story. Stuff to come out. So at some time, I can only say zero dark 30. I mean, it really was, you know, I hate to say it, but it was pitch dark. 
it was blowing a gale. It was freezing cold. And we stumbled out onto the flight flight deck, crammed ourselves into these two, because, of course, not only there was us, there were the extra flying crews, there was all the stores, there was all our tents, there was all our rations, there was everything. I personally could not move in that plane. And we clattered in at low, low level into San... Uh, we arrived at forward operating base San Carlos at just before the first line. Or in fact, at, I, I think we came in at first, first, first line. Um, we staggered out of the planes. The senior pilot told us to keep one aircraft going. He went off to the ops tent, came back literally, I seem to remember a few minutes later, might have been 10 or 15, said, right, here's the plan. We're not going to be flying at night. We're going to be flying at night and during the day with both aircraft all the time. Okay. Aye, aye, sir. <laughs> um, and with that, one of our aircraft, the crew jumped in and lumbered off and joined the, uh, joined the war. I was faced with, well, what have I got here? I was in a field with uh, 825, who were 706 Squadron rebadged, I seem to remember, uh, who were operating converted seeking Mark IIs, stripped out. Um, we had 846 and 845 were lobbing around, and down the bottom of the field, we had the Boneyard, where the Army, where the Army Air Corps were doing their miraculous best to rebuild shattered scouts and gazelles. Uh, we were shown a field and told, well, you can pitch your tents there. There's a field kitchen there and don't leave anything lying around because the Welsh guards will steal it. I thought, no, 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 that won't actually touch that happen. But everybody was short of kit. And frankly, if there was any kit lying around uh, and uh, there's actually more to come. So that was the deal. And uh, we uh, spent uh, the rest of the time that was on, I was ashore with them for eight days leading up to we finally came back to two and a bit days after the surrender. And the other particular thing, so what we were doing was to, at night, we were flying night reconnaissance missions over West Falkland. There were persistent rumours, I believe, I only got this third hand, that there were some Argentinian special forces across there. So we were carrying certain bunch of people around to see if we could find them um during the day we were flying full full tilt as well one of our observers actually took the surrender of nine of a number of argentinians uh, they'd seen these guys trudging across the field and uh, the guys were were actually waving their hands so they thought they were Brits, and when they touched down, they found they were a bunch of lost Argies. So uh, our observer gratefully accepted their surrender. The particular thing that our squadron did, which doesn't get enough comment, was we actually flew the general into Port Stanley to take the surrender. Because when the intelligence came through, it was, again, a dark and stormy night, and the only aircraft that was radar-equipped on the, on the island was ours. So our senior pilot went in with a very good crew. They flew to, I think, Fox Bay, I believe, picked up the, uh, uh, picked up the, the uh, boss and um, 
flew round to Port Stanley, which of course was still officially at war, did a self-controlled approach into the runway, switched on their lights, and then using a street map, hover taxi through Port Stanley. Welcome to the Bilge Pumps, where a bunch of naval geeks spout off. Hello, dear listeners. I hope you've enjoyed part one or two. I know we surely did. In fact, we've enjoyed it so much, we've already booked up Steve to come back again. So I'll hope you carry on to part two for even more stories from one of the most elite engineers we have ever had the pleasure of talking to. And those aren't my words. Those were the words of Jamie after talking about Steve. So thank you very much for listening. Thank you for everyone who does listen to Bilge Pumps. And I hope you enjoy part two as much as we did. Thank <laughs> you.